Sir, I'm detecting a subspace message. I'll put it on speakers. Subspace, dare to wonder. The Entrapment Radio Program with Scotty Roberts. Intelligent Talk. Hey folks, welcome to the program. This is me, your host, Scotty Roberts. Welcome to the show. This is the Intrepid Radio Program. For those of you who don't know where you've landed, uh, that's where you are. And you are listening either over on the radio station, which is subspace.radio, in the audio format, or you are over on my YouTube channel or Facebook watching this as a video simulcast uh, in podcast form, I guess you'd say. And you can find it on my Facebook page, on uh, Subspace Radio's Facebook page. You can find it on Intrepid Radio's Facebook page. You can find it on IntrepidRadio.com. And you can find it over on YouTube.com slash Scotty Roberts. And uh, for all of you who are joining via um, uh, YouTube, that is also everyone else listening where the chat room is. So you can come over to the chat and meet the rest of the intrepids. Have a good time and conversation over there. While you're at the YouTube page, you can subscribe and then hit the little bell to get announcements. You can also hit the join button, which will show you three ways that you can financially join this effort. And that financial ranges from a buck a month to five bucks a month to 15 bucks a month. All that does, uh, it's not required. The show is always free. But what that does is it shows me who uh, would like to help support the show and the efforts that go on here. Because there are bills and there are financial things. So blah, 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 blah on economics and finance. So thank you all ahead of time and those of you that are members already. Matt Finn is here. Master Finn, the master and commander of the chat room. And uh, he says, hello, Captain and Intrepid crew. Happy Frigid Friday, everyone. Frigid. I want to keep reading Frigid as Frigid. Maybe I say Friggin too much. I don't know what it is. But uh, Matthew Sainsbury is here from Barbados, Rapid Dog. He's drinking his Dickens Cider. And Field Guy from Louisiana, who thinks that it's me who has caused all the cold weather down off the Gulf Coast. It, it, it ain't me, Field Guy. It ain't me and all my Nolans fans and friends. Uh, let's see. Who else we got in here? Michelle Kenham Free is here. Good to see you. And I did see a Paige Rockwell Soiree was in here a bit earlier, maybe a bit before time. Sarah Youssef is here. Hello. Looking forward to tonight, she says. And uh, I will say about tonight that uh, the content I have could fill much more than less than an hour's worth of airtime. Uh, you could spend a whole semester uh, studying Dickens literature and its influence on Christmas, the Victorian ghost stories in Christmas. So it's it's kind of uh, Victorian Christmas ghost tales light uh, by way of Dickens tonight. And I was going to find my copy of Charles Dickens' works so I could read a little segment, and I neglected to do that. It's up there somewhere on that shelf, 
or it's over on that shelf, or it's over in that glass shelf over there, or it's over there, or it could possibly be in that shelf with all my old books, my antiquarian books. I don't know where it is. And I don't have time now to get up and look for it. So we'll do without that tonight. Actual excerpts from the book. It's over there, says Field Guy. Yes. And so uh, I don't know what the weather is like for you guys up there. Let's find out what our weather is right now. Hey, Siri, what's the actual weather report right now? She says it is minus two degrees. And uh, uh, it's not going to get much different, but it's going to be partly sunny like it was today for the next several days. But it's not going to get much above zero. And the wind was pretty harsh today. Uh, So while the sun was shining, the wind was blowing. And uh, you got down to about 30 degrees below zero with the wind chill. Uh, So it was uh, it was not the not the funnest weather, but it was pretty outside. So with the sunshine anyway. We'll move on from that. I want to do one little thing here. I've got these tumblers. Now, the light is really bad trying to show this out there. You see, hold it that way. It blots it out. I go this way. And let's see. Now, this is the Intrepid Radio Broadcast. Radio Broadcast. You see there on the bottom with the Intrepid Rocket. Uh, This is uh, our official coffee tumbler. And it doesn't have to be coffee you drink out of it. Uh, but it's got several different lids. This one's got a screw-on lid. And it's got the straw the straw that folds up out of there, the big plastic straw. Uh, so this is going to be a water bottle. Uh, they can be coffee. I put my coffee in them. The coffee stays warm all day long, which is kind of nice if you keep the lid on. Take the lid off, it gets cooler faster. But this is what Rainy does. And so we've done up an Intrepid Radio. Uh, broadcast tumbler, as you see right there. Um, Sarah asked about the uh, intelligent talk. We can put one of those together faster than you can say, Bob's your uncle. So uh, we may have another one coming too. But there they are. If you want to order those, you can go over to Two Loons, twoloonstumblers.com. That's Rainey's website. And you can find it in there. And if you don't find it there, it's over on my wall in Facebook, and you can click on it. Uh, I like iced coffee, says Paul Brew. I do, too, frankly. Uh, I don't like, it's funny, I don't like it when my coffee gets cold, but I like iced coffee, which is kind of the extreme of both ends. I like it hot, or I like it iced. I do not like it tepid and in the middle. So, love that tumbler, says Sarah. Thank you very much, Sarah. And uh, also, I've got to let you know that uh, it is now official. You can go to, I'm going to type this in the chat room, antonedabs.com. Now, that's Andy Dabs, my friend. That's his official website. But we've revamped that whole website over the last few days to reflect the release of his new book, uh, which I helped him write. Uh, Andy wrote all the stuff and sent it to me and he's not a writer so I bookified all of it and I added a lot of stuff in there as well and uh, it's basically a book that started about his memoirs how he got to where he is in life uh, the how he pulled himself up by his bootstraps how he literally made things happen to get where he is now and at a man who is 
more than 10 years my my younger. Uh, he's worth millions of dollars because of his business and how he made his business work for him. And that has left him free to do other things. Now, also, you can see, I also did this website for him this week uh, because we wanted to showcase both of them. He just opened his new, uh, he was looking for something to do. <laughs> Isn't that nice when you have in uh, uh, entrepreneurial guys, men and women, that they've made it, they're successful, and uh, he's looking for new businesses to start. And uh, so, uh, why would you want to bob your uncle? Who wants to bob me, says Uncle Dave. <laughs> Not I. And so um uh you can go look at uh, the website I put up skate-co skateco.com and that is his Brainerd skateboard company. And uh, it's a pretty cool place. I wish it was closer. It's 3 hours from here. But uh north of here, but Brainerd's uh, it's got the big race tracks in Brainerd. Uh Paul Newman, the uh late actor used to go up there every year and and race his cars. So, uh, 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 and it's nice. It's in the North woods of Minnesota at the same time you get out of town. That's where Andy lives. I've broadcast from his house many times up there on the lake in the North woods. And he started the, the, uh, skateboard company and it, because it's something he likes, he bought out an, an old skateboard company. that was just a hole in the wall and he moved it to a new location. And you go over to that website. And you can see pictures just right on the front page, the big picture of their new building. And just that exterior will give you a good idea of how classy that place is. And on the inside, Andy is building, if any of you are skateboarders or have been skateboarders, you'll know what I mean by a bowl. It's got an indoor bowl. That's your skateboard park. So he's got a miniature indoor bowl that he's building. It's still under construction in one half of the building. And it's pretty impressive. And you can see that on there as well. Uh, so that's rad, says Paige. Gnarly. I say back to Paige, I'll raise your rad to a gnarly. <laughs> and so um, uh, so it's quite a place. But uh, you can look at the book. There's three different versions of the book. There's a premium hardback that's full color on the inside. And then there is a uh, two versions of the soft cover a color version and a black and white version. And as you can imagine, the, the price is higher for the color books and the hardback color book. And then the black and white is probably a pretty uh, common priced for uh, uh, standard books that you see out there. It's about a 300 page book. And, uh, uh, and so it's, uh, it's, I, I was going to read before we get into Dickens, I wanted to read a little segment of Andy's book. And I put this up on the website. You can actually see it over on the website. There is a, uh, uh, let me see if I can find the site. The site is Anton, A-N-T-O-N, dabs, D-A-B-B-S dot com. And uh, in the upper menu, you go to the book in the upper menu. And it's got a, uh, a little excerpt that I put in. This gives you an idea of the tone the book started as this business book, entrepreneurial. He wanted to write his memoirs, stuff about his family life, the struggles he came up with. His, and then as we got into writing about that, very early on in the process, um, I said, you know, you should really take a different angle with this and make it a book less about rags to riches, business, entrepreneurial, uh, that people can gloss over unless they're into that stuff and write about your anxieties. 
and write about uh, the struggles you've had with that. And he did. He just took that and ran with it. And then he would write things and he would push them out to me. I got a really good feel for for Andy as I was writing this book. Uh, Maybe some of you who understand this will know. To some of you who don't, this might sound a little weird, but I think there is a empathic part of me that applies to a lot of different parts of my life, things that I do. But that empathic part linked right into Andy as I was writing the book. And I was able to pull some things out that I wrote that I didn't even run by him. I thought about them and I I said, this is right. And I wrote about them and he read that and he said, man, you're inside my head. And so uh, that's what you'll find in the book. And uh, so one of the segments, it's right here. Uh, it's, uh, where did I, I leave it? The book, it goes like this. Um, I, I put this little, uh, this little intro to it. And I said, entrepreneurial entrepreneurism, overcoming obstacles, achieving success, that still small voice. This book started as an exercise in relating how to create success in business. But during the creative process, the book became more about how to learn from past struggles, wrangle with anxiety, how to find the path to overcoming the things that tend to sabotage every aspect of life. And uh, uh, Andy makes no bones about it. He's on meds to this day to help control his anxieties. So here's from the book. This is from the introduction. It goes like this. I love to hike. It connects me with reality while grounding me in the energy of the earth beneath my feet. Once I leave the busyness of my day and go out walking away from the mad world, that's when I begin to really feel free. The open air has a bracing effect on my mind. The, the congestion of life, the uproar, the tumult we can, all in, uh, we can all inevitably make of the events of our daily schedules, the intolerable noise of traffic through which I love to drive too fast and too free, the sometimes depressing daily routine, all these are forgotten and my mind is at liberty. My power of observation is sharpened on that quiet path through the forest. I live in a small town in the north woods of Minnesota, so my access to the quiet is nearly as immediate as stepping out my back door. I can hear the wind in the tall pines and the loons calling out on the lake. I can see the smallest flit of a bird or squirrel in the trees around me. My senses are heightened in a very soothing way. My hikes ensure a complete escape from the urgent and busy activities of my life and therefore give my brain the rest it needs, refreshing and rejuvenating me, allowing me to almost double my productivity when I'm back at my desk. Most of all, when I hike, I'm quieted to hear that still small voice that calls from the wilderness of my past to the mind of my present. The future can take care of itself when we heed what we hear. I'm not thinking such grandiose thoughts that anything I have to write on these pages is a must-read or the answer to everything in life or worse, some self-satisfying church brunch goulash of what could be seen as my personal rags-to-riches story. I'm not so self-involved or self-aggrandizing 
as to believe that my story is so almighty important to anyone other than me. But I do believe that my story is one worth telling for the simple joy of recounting events and placing them in a structure that someone else might recognize in their own life. I was a bad boy who very early started down a path that could have led me to a destroyed and wasted life. Hell, I might even be sitting in prison right now instead of jotting down these thoughts, but I chose a different path. I cognitively decided who I wanted to be, then engaged in actions with many zigzags along the way that have brought me to this very moment. And those moments of decision, those defining moments we can all look back to in every one of our lives weren't always things that I conceived of out of nothing. They were moments when I was led to make decisions based on my own actions to either move forward down this path or the other paths extending out from the very crossroads that I had encountered. End of segment. So that is out of the introduction to the book. And uh, he carries on through a lot of things in there. Daniel Craig says, the one created from my own energy. Uh, Jiraiya is my personal psychiatrist, so there is that. There you go. And uh, so um, go out and take a look at it. Go to uh, antondabs.com and uh, go ahead and pick up your book there. And it'll be a few weeks before they ship out. But uh, if you get your name in there, every book that comes in order through the website will be autographed as well, by the way, uh, by uh, Andy and by me. So uh, there you go. That's what I have to say about that. So go check it out. And then check out his uh, skate.co, uh, skate.co.com, uh, and uh, enjoy his, uh, his new business venture. And by the way, Andy and I are starting to work on a second book and a book that focuses mainly on anxiety and overcoming anxiety and so on. It'll be an interesting couple of months putting that one together. That starts immediately. He's already been sending me notes. So there you go. Thank you, Michelle Canamfree. I appreciate that. Now on to Dickens. Dickens. Um, there's, uh, I wanted to explore this idea of how the horror story became, or the ghost story became so linked to Christmas in the, uh, uh, in the Victorian times, especially. And toward the end of each year, um, by the way, spooky stories featuring the supernatural were all the rage during that darkest time of the year in Victorian England. And as fireplaces were lit and as we uh, light our fires or turn on our electric gas uh, fireplaces and there's hot cocoa, uh, Americans have made it a tradition to revisit their favorite classic holiday books, their movies, the songs. And though ghost stories may seem out of place, in present-day American holiday celebrations, they were once a Christmas staple, reaching their peak of popularity in Victorian England. Now, there were no ghost stories in the original uh, Christmas story in the Bible. Uh, it was a story of supernatural activity, 
when you think about it. We're taught certain things in church and in our faith beliefs that when we step back, we go, oh, wait, that's a very spooky story when you think about it. A bunch of shepherds sitting out in the field, and all of a sudden the sky is filled with angels. We think, oh, what wonder. Just imagine, you know, you think of sitting in your, lying in your bed at night in the quiet, and if something appeared out of nowhere, uh, a vision or a person or an angelic being, you don't know it at first, it just appears to you and starts talking to you, you're going to probably pee your sheets. That kind of stuff can be very frightening when it first happens. But then you, as they, as it goes on in that story, what happened? Shepherds, uh, oh, it's the angels. Okay, click. Now we're okay with it. I'll bet you they were pretty stunned if that's actually the way the things happened. Um, <clears throat> so uh, a dark, spooky time of the year is how these story when these stories started becoming this this Christmas staple in England. And like most longstanding cultural customs, the precise origin of the telling of ghost stories at the end of the year is unknown, largely because it began as an oral tradition without the written records. But according to Sarah Cleto, a folklorist who specializes in British literature, and she's co-founder of the Carter House School of Folklore and the Fantastic, wouldn't that be a great place to go to school? Where do you go to school? The Carter House School of Folklore and the Fantastic? <laughs> the season around the winter solstice, which for us was just two days ago, uh, has been one of a transition and change for a very, very, very long time, she says, and has uh, provoked oral stories about spooky things in many different countries and cultures all over the world. And furthermore, spooky storytelling gave people something to do during the long, dark evenings before there was electric lights. And uh, the long midwinter nights meant folks had to stop working early they had to spend their leisure hours huddled close to the fire. Um, Tara Moore, an assistant professor at the English uh, of English at Elizabethtown College, she was author of Victorian Christmas in Print and the editor of the Val Valencourt Book of Victorian Christmas Ghost Stories. Uh, she says, plus, you didn't need to be literate to retell the local ghost story. You didn't have to know how to read and write. And so effects the industrialization revolution. It was in Victoria, England, that telling supernatural tales at the end of the year, specifically during Christmas season, went from oral tradition to a timely trend. And this was in part due to the development of the steam-powered printing press during the Industrial Revolution that made the written word more widely available to everybody. Uh, books used to be handwritten. Uh, before Gutenberg came along, and then they were, you know, produced uh, at massive expense and massive uh, amounts of time to print just one book. So, uh, but this all gave the Victorians the opportunity to commercialize and commodify existing oral ghost stories, turning them into a version they could sell higher literacy rates, cheaper printing costs, and more periodicals. That meant that editors needed to fill pages. Around Christmas time, they figured they could convert the old storytelling tradition to a printed version. And so what was it? It was entrepreneurs. It was business people wanting to make a little more ching were the ones that said, look, we can get books in the hands of people. 
So while people will criticize any idea that comes on, this has come up several times in conversations the last week, it seems for me with people, but people will criticize somebody doing a really cool thing out there in business because, well, they're just doing it to make money. My answer is, well, duh, of course they're doing it to make money. My own books that my publisher publishes, they'll only do books of mine and publish my books so long as it makes them money. If my books made them no money, they wouldn't be knocking on my door very often, would they? Because it'd be a waste of time for them. It would have to be an act of altruism for a publisher to come along and say, I'll publish your book knowing I'm not going to make one single penny on that thing, but it's just so it's available for the rare person that comes along and wants to know your thing. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, what's that, Sarah? That's how you ended up with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Oh, okay. I thought you were making fun of my nose. I felt very Cyrano at that moment. Anyway, people who moved out of their towns and villages and into the larger cities, cities, they still wanted access to the supernatural sagas they heard around the fireplace growing up. And fortunately, Victorian authors like Elizabeth Gaskell, uh, Margaret Oliphant, and Arthur Conan Doyle we all know who he is, uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, worked through the fall to cook up these stories and have them ready to print in time for Christmas. Pardon me, I got to take a, I got to wet my whistle. Mm. With a little tangerine flavored LaCroix, LaCroix water. And uh, industrialization not only provided tools that uh, allowed these guys to distribute spooky stories. Uh, uncertainty during the era also fueled interest in the genre, says Brittany Warman. She was a folklorist specializing in Gothic literature and the co-founder of the Carter Haas School of Folklore and the Fantastic. Interest was driven, she says, by the rise of industrialization, the rise of science, the looming fall of Victorian Britain as superpower. All of these things were in people's minds, and it made the world seem a bit darker and a little bit scarier. And uh, But these stories started to find these wide-ranging audiences, the audiences that, that, that started to gain knowledge of them through literature as opposed to oral tradition. Telling horror-filled holiday tales continued to be a family affair in England, even when they were read rather than recited. We know from illustrations and diaries that the whole families, whole families read these periodicals together and they looked at the pictures. My kids, they, my little ones especially, they love it when I have a book that has illustrations. That's why I do illustrated books. I've written a bunch that aren't illustrated, but the ones I do that are illustrated are to please my kids, to give them something to look at. And I think adults like pictures too. And maybe some guys like pictures, too. Oh, it's got pictures. So I don't read books. I just look at pictures. I've got ma male friends of mine, if I can go off on a mini tangent. I've got male friends that I, uh, when we're talking about stuff that I do and the things that, well, you write about anyway. Well, I write about this and that. Hey, I got a copy or you want to take one home? No, I don't read. <laughs> like, what? what do you mean you don't read? You need to read. Reading expands your mind. Well, so does TikTok, I'll be told. Yeah, a B is in B, S is in S. 
So anyway, the popularity of Victorian Christmas ghost stories also transcended socioeconomic statuses. According to, to Moore from this institute, she said they were available to read everywhere from cheap publications to expensive Christmas annuals that the middle-class ladies would show off on their coffee tables. And the broad audience for these kinds of stories was reflected in the stories themselves, which sometimes centered around working-class characters and other times took place in haunted manor houses. And uh, uh, these upper-class settings were intended to invite readers from all classes into an idealized upper-crust Christmas the type today's fans of shows like Downton Abbey still enjoy as entertainment. Now you have the, the Charles Dickens effect. And uh, Charles Dickens, his 19, uh, I'm sorry, 18, 1843 novella, A Christmas Carol, has forever linked the British author with the holiday season. But his contributions to Christmas in Victorian England including the tradition of telling and reading ghost stories, extend far beyond Jacob Marley's visit to Scrooge. You realize that that was 1842 when Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. Uh, 1843, I'm sorry. And uh, which is what, 180 years ago? That's a long time ago. When you think about it, that's, that's darn close to 200 years old. That story, but 1843. In fact, Dickens played a huge part in popularizing the genre in England. He wrote a bunch of different Christmas novellas, several of which involved ghosts. Specifically, she says, uh, uh, this is, uh, by the way, Cleto. She said uh, that, uh, and then he started editing more and more Christmas ghost stories from other people and working those into magazines he was already editing. And that just caught like wildfire. Uh, Dickens also helped shape Christmas literature in general by formulating expectations about themes like forgiveness and reunion during the holiday season. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Next year, all our troubles will be miles away. Where would you think songs like that started from? They're all the thoughts that we have at Christmas time. But it was Dickens that helped create that through giving the people what they wanted to have, ghost stories associated with the Christmas season and the end of the year. American Christmas traditions were kind of more syrupy than spooky. Um, uh, there were countless of trends that made their way from England to America during the Victorian era, and the telling of ghost stories during the Christmas season was not one that really caught on right away. A Christmas Carol was an immediate bestseller in the United States, but at the time of its publication, Dickens was arguably the most famous writer in the world and already wildly popular. So the novella's success in the U.S. likely had more to do with Dickens' existing massive fan base than it did Americans' interest in incorporating the supernatural into Christmas. So American Christmas scenes and stories tended to be syrupy sweet. There were a few American writers of the period trying to put Victorian-style Christmas ghost stories into American literature, including Nathaniel Hawthorne and Henry James, 
Washington Irving, uh, who wrote uh, The Legend of Sleeping Hollow, uh, made a similar and early attempt slipping the supernatural into Christmas-themed short stories that were published in 1819 and 1820. Um, it's been theorized that American reluctance to embrace the Christmas ghost story tradition had to at least in part, had to do at least in part with the country's attitudes toward things like magic and superstitions. We were pretty pragmatic over here compared to England. In America, we generally had a bit of resistance to the whole supernatural craze in the way that European countries didn't. When you came to America, you came with a fresh start. You didn't have ancient castles and ancient lands and ancient ghost stories to play off of. It was a fresh new place to be. You came with a secular mindset. The idea that you were leaving the past behind. And some of these spooky superstitions were thought of as being part of the past and things that, frankly, needed to be left behind. And another reason telling spooky stories never took off as a Christmas tradition in the United States was because it became more firmly established as a Halloween tradition, thanks to the Irish and the Scottish immigrants. That uh, That's what really impacted culture here, because they, were brought, they brought with them the concept similar to Halloween. And that became, for America, the time uh, period for ghosts, you watch the news around Halloween time. What happens? For those of you who are into the paranormal, or like me and several others that listen to this show, you're into uh, exploring the paranormal or investigating hauntings and things like that, documenting things. We do that all year round. And then we see, oh, the news, the media, the local news stations, all that. What do they do at Halloween time? That's all they wanted. Everything becomes ghosty. As soon as Halloween's over, November 1st comes, no more ghost stories, at least for another 11 months. And uh, so uh, that's what we have. That We have the Halloween tradition. And so the Christmas tradition from the Victorians of spooky stories was slower catching on around here. So other than A Christmas Carol, there's another piece of pop culture that reflects the Victorian Christmas tradition. A single line from a song written and released in 1963 by American musicians. And it was first recorded by, and you hear it on all these old Christmas albums. We've got them. We play the old LPs on a record player when we're decorating the tree around here in our, with our family. Uh, but uh, Andy Williams sang, It's the most wonderful time of the year. And... Uh, there's a part in the song that says, uh, with scary ghost stories and da 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 And that's, that's one of the highlights of the holiday season. Where'd that come from? Do you ever notice that when listening to that song? Scary ghost stories. When was that associated with Christmas? So although it's, although it's un unclear why the writers of that song, uh, Edward Pola and George Weil, if you wondered, uh, and you forget that as soon as I tell it to you, uh, included the tradition. Nobody knows why they put that in there. Cleto says that it's possible that the lyric is a reference to Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's only one text, but it's such a big deal here in the U.S. and the U.K., and it's pretty much all that Americans know about Christmas ghost stories in isolation from each other, is that Dickens came up with the idea. 
And uh, there's an interesting movie. I made uh, reference to it. I don't know what the name of the movie is. Was it Dickens? Was it Dickens' Christmas Carol? Uh, I don't know what it was. But uh, <clears throat> it had the actor. Uh, what was it? What did I see him in? Um, good-looking, tall, blonde. Um, he was in Downton Abbey. as a character that married one of the, the daughters of the, the rich family early on. Uh, then they killed him off. Uh, he also played the Beast in Disney's uh, uh, real-life version of Beauty and the Beast. Um, so he's very interesting. But you, you'll know who he is when you see him. But that British actor played Dickens. And it's a bit of a comical movie, but uh, it kind of hit the, the highlights of the facts that Dickens was being pressed to come out with a good story for Christmas. And he didn't know what to write. It was kind of like a writer's block thing. He couldn't quite get down what he wanted to say uh, for Christmas. And when you're under the gun, like if I have a publisher that's hounding me for a book, uh, it's like, uh, oh, can't write that right now. I don't know what to write. I've had that. I've had writer's block. I've sat with my own books and stared. And I write and write and write and write the same two sentences over and over again to make sure they sound right and that they flow well. Uh, it doesn't always work. But I wanted to look at the ghosts in A Christmas Carol. And the ghosts are, by turns, they're comic, they're grotesque, they're allegorical. And uh, there had been ghosts in literature long before the Victorians, but the ghost story, as a distinct and popular genre, was the invention of the Victorians. And Charles Dickens was hugely influential in establishing the genre's popularity, not only as a writer, but also as an editor. His journals, Household Words was the name, and All the Year Round was another one, specialized in ghost stories, and other contemporary journals followed. Dickens' close friend and biographer, John Forster, said that the novelist had a hankering after ghosts. And not that Dickens exactly believed in ghosts, he wasn't so much a paranormalist. He wasn't a spiritist like other uh, authors that were contemporary in his day. But he was intrigued by our belief in them. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was an author that was very much into the paranormal and the supernatural. He helped found the, uh, the British uh, College, which is still there, the uh, College of Psychic Studies. And you can still go there today. And uh, it's like a five-flat, tall, narrow building that goes way back, uh, downtown London, right at the end of the block from the uh, the big art museum there. So uh, in A Christmas Carol, which was written in 1843, the first of his ghost stories, Dickens harnesses that belief by making the supernatural a natural extension of the real world of Scrooge and his victims. And this is a long way from the specters of uh, earlier Gothic fiction. And the portrayals of the ghosts in The Christmas Carol. Dickens presents each of these four ghosts in a very different way as they contrast one another throughout the whole novel. He uses the views and the reactions of the character Scrooge and the physical descriptions of the ghosts to portray their moral significance. And it was a, all at once, it was kind of a comical type of a thing, in a way, for Victorian times. And it was, it was 
grotesquely macabre in a very gothic sense. And so the novel is split into five staves or chapters with the three ghosts of the past, present, and future visiting Scrooge. But there was a fourth ghost. Do you remember who the fourth ghost was? There were actually four ghosts in A Christmas Carol. Do you know who that ghost was off the top of your head? Because we sometimes miss talking about him. Uh, we move right by talking about him. Uh, of course, uh, I don't see it coming up quick over in the chat room. But that, of course, of course, was the ghost of Scrooge's former business partner, Marley. Robert Marley. I think it was Robert. Bob Marley? I do know that uh, Jacob Marley. There it is. Thank you, Matthew. Leave it to Matthew Sainsbury to find the facts for us. Thank you very much, Matthew. And uh, so um, uh, he introduced the readers first. You meet Scrooge when he's introduced by Marley's ghost in the first chapter, who was Scrooge's former business partner. And in stave five, we see how Scrooge has changed from the very beginning of the book, contrasting to the first chapter when he's a mean, stingy, miserly old man. Dickens called the chapters staves, which are references to verses of song, which he has cleverly linked in with the title of the novel, A Christmas Carol. And so each chapter is like a verse in a carol, and this structure of the novel is effective because it emphasizes the story, it gets across the spirit of Christmas in a subtle and a very different way than had been done before that. And the first ghost to appear in front of Scrooge is that of Jacob Marley, his past partner. And uh, the chain he drew was clasped around his waist, or class, as Dickens said, clasped around his middle. And he presents Marley with a long chain wrapped around him made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses to show that he's trapped by his regrets made in life and that he isn't free of his sins. The cash boxes on Marley's chain represent his character, showing that when he was alive, he relied on his money and that it was the only thing Marley thought about. And Dickens presents businessmen as like Marley and Scrooge as rather selfish and heartless people uh, they uh, the saying that there are key, that there are keys and padlocks on Marley's chain which may suggest that they keep everything locked inside them and certainly they were misers who kept all their money counted their money at night for fun because they didn't do anything and they didn't have tv for all the money they had they had no tv in victorian england so dickens stereotypes this society that scrooge lives in as self-contained, rather ignorant people who turn a blind eye to the poor and to the lower-class households in the Victorian times. Dickens also describes the chain as a tail wound around Marley by using a simile he helps the reader to visualize the, the imagery, giving the dis, uh, giving a dis, given that describing Marley's ghost as though Marley cannot escape his regrets. He's chained to them. So Dickens uses the word tail, which could be suggesting that the chain becomes part of Marley's anatomy. And so he has to live with this chain growing into and out of and wrapped around him for the rest of his eternal existence. 
There's no redemption in the afterlife. So Dickens believed, by the way, he writes about this story. There is no redemption in the afterlife. There's a theme of regret throughout the entire novel. And I think that that, that Dickens could be personifying Marley's regret as they are the things that are forcing him to stay on earth as a spirit. Marley visits Scrooge to warn him about the regrets and the mistakes he made over his own life. And it's therefore telling Scrooge to change his ways before it's too late. And Marley tells Scrooge that being a spirit is, quote, incessant torture of remorse, end quote. That's how Marley describes being a spirit, an incessant torture of remorse. It shows the reader that Marley wishes he could have lived a more fulfilling life as he finds his time as a spirit tormenting and unhappy. Isn't that the way it always is? There's regrets. We can't turn back. We can't. In this life, we had the opportunity to change something. Do we have anybody who's into spiritualism or in your spirituality? Do you know of anybody who has the ability to change his ways, to change their stripes in the afterlife? Maybe if you believe in reincarnation. Sometimes reincarnation is listed as a punishment for the things that we did that were wrong. I'm I'm convinced that I have all this great wealth at my fingertips but can never achieve it because I was probably, in one of my past lives, I'm paying for it now. I was a feudal lord that... Uh, 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 raped his tenants' wives and and uh, slapped them all into slavery and beheaded them when I didn't like them and stole all their money. <clears throat> Maybe I'm paying for that in my in my life now. Who the hell knows? But uh, uh, Marley wishes that he could have lived a more fulfilling life. He has his regrets in the afterlife, and because of Marley never ending, because of his never ending torture, it could also suggest that because of his actions. Marley has gone to hell to replay his sins. And Charles Dickens has given a moral message to the reader and also to society, telling them to think about their regrets made in life and how their actions have affected others and to possibly change their way of life like Scrooge. Did you know that Dickens, this just came into my mind, Dickens was a big advocate for trying to put down the poverty in New York City during his time, especially if you ever saw the the, the or read the book The Gangs of New York with uh, Daniel Day Lewis and uh, um, uh, DiCaprio, um, The Gangs of New York, Paradise Square, the 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 Five Points in New York City. Uh, Dickens had visited the Five Points in his day. And he called it one of the most uh, horrifying uh, um, slums uh, a, a squalor he had ever encountered. And he was a big proponent of trying to help change that, putting money into it and into people. Um, and so uh, Marley tells Scrooge that his chain was as long as his seven years ago. And Scrooge has labored on it since. And uh, Marley then tells Scrooge that he has hope of escaping my fate, he says, when three spirits will visit him over the next three nights. And with that, Marley's gone. 
And so Dickens is trying to portray the message that you should think about the actions in your life and treat everyone with respect, because otherwise your regrets made in life could catch up with you, like Marley's did. So when you think about that, that's a pretty heavy-duty theme in A Christmas Carol. You can see it by the... um, uh, um, not rejuvenation, the not uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not rejuvenation, not re- repentance, the the uh, uh, redemption of Scrooge by the end of that book. So that message meant something, and the redemption of a man that was suffering from it was warned of it by a ghost. And then three more ghosts take him on these journeys, past, present, and future. Another theme in the novel is the theme of redemption. As Scrooge is told by ghosts, he can still change the person he might become. And so when Dickens wrote the novel, there was a large divide between the rich and the poor societies, and he wanted to change that by selling a Christmas carol for five shillings each, which meant that everyone could read the book no matter how much money they earned. Five shillings was nothing. So also Dickens was trying to get the message across to the ignorant rich of the Victorian times about how the poor lived in poverty, like Tiny Tim and his family in the novel. You remember the ghost of Christmas yet to be, yet to come. Uh, It's very much implied that, that Tiny Tim did not survive the year because of his illness. But when Scrooge's, if you haven't read the novel, here's a spoiler alert. When Scrooge is redeemed, the redemption of Scrooge, of Ebenezer Scrooge, one of the first things he does is he sets about finding the best doctors he can for uh, uh, his employee's son, little Tim. So it was a fixable thing that the impoverished in Victorian England had no chance of ever surviving. And so um, because of this moral message, Dickens portrayed, he, he, he hoped that it would encourage more people to give money to the poor, possibly to redeem their sins made in life. Furthermore, the character of Scrooge could have related to many upper-class selfish businessmen who felt regret about their mistakes, wanted to become better people, much like Scrooge. As at the beginning of the story, Scrooge is shown as a cold, bitter man. But by the end of the novel, he's broken open and he becomes a changed man. It's the stuff he repressed and pushed down. Because if he didn't have it in him, he couldn't have been redeemed to reclaim it. He had pushed it down and repressed it to be the man that he was. And he was redeemed from that. And it all broke back out into the open. He's a changed man at the end. And this moral message about redemption is still a very important issue today. And I think that's why the book is still as popular as it was a hundred years ago. And so the first of three spirits to appear in front of Scrooge is the ghost of Christmas past, whom Dickens describes as a strange and a like a child, making the ghost seem as if it were young and childlike. However, Dickens then contradicts himself, saying that the spirit's hair was white as if with age giving the readers the impression that even though the spirit might be old, the childhood memories are still with him. And because of this, you feel as a reader that even though you're more mature than your past says you are, as you grow old, 
helping to shape the person you become. The ghost is showing Scrooge that for him to be able to change his ways, he has to look back into his past and learn from the mistakes that he's made, but also from the happy experiences he was that he experienced with Marley. And because of this, the spirit can be seen as a personification of memory as everyone has to look into their own past and learn from it to become a better person. So the spirit could be seen also as an angel, as Dickens described the spirit, with a bright, clear jet of light coming from his head, which could be perceived as a halo, like an angel. And because it's shining very brightly out of the spirit's crown, it could represent its mind and the strength of his thoughts and his memories. I hope we get to this. If we don't, we will finish this in the captain's cabin. Folks, if you're listening on the radio station and we have to cut this off uh, for time because, frankly, in uh, two more minutes, two and a half minutes, uh, we're done on the radio station, we're going to continue this on over in the captain's cabin. So we'll play a little break in between and you'll be able to come over and join us because I want to finish all this uh, over in the captain's cabin. So the second ghost that visits Scrooge is the ghost of Christmas present. Dickens presents this ghost as a really happy, kind spirit. Greg Garris, <laughs> you've seen some of the movie uh, adaptations of this character, the big red beard and the wreath, and, and he looks like Uncle Dave with red hair. And, uh, and uh, Dickens presents the ghost as a happy, kind spirit, which is very much the opposite of Scrooge, who's a miserable, selfish man. And the spirit is seen as a kind-hearted and welcoming person saying, come in to Scrooge. And he wears a green robe, which could symbolize Christmas, as this is a typical festive color, but it could also represent nature and the pureness of it. So to begin with, Scrooge is very wary of the spirit as he lay upon his bed, but eventually he goes to visit the spirit, and this could be because Scrooge is scared about what is to come. But also it could imply that he's finding it hard to change his ways. He finds that the room has had a surprising transformation with holly, mistletoe, ivy scattered around, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, and bright gleaming berries. And these are all typical Christmas objects, which could be portraying the happiness of Christmas spirit and the warmth and the kindness that comes with Christmas. And now we've got to take a break here, folks. We've got to say goodbye to the radio audience. So radio audience, I want to thank you for being here. Live long and prosper. Join us over on the YouTube channel. Join us every weeknight at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. The Intrepid Radio Program, a Scotty Roberts Productions broadcast. Multiphasic transmissions overlapping, it's almost a gibberish. Subspace, dare to wonder. <laughs> 